You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? You failed? Seriously, what the hell? We're body. We've been a part of that too, but not anymore. At body, we're rejecting perfection and embracing reality. Not in a pizza Monday kind of way, in a loving your whole life kind of way. In a, this workout is fun and it's okay if I take a week off kind of way. In an, I'm eating healthy and it's okay if I indulge kind of way. In a, I like myself no matter what kind of way. Yeah, you will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are body. Start your free trial at body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. Yeah. And then, you know, all of that actually comes from a point of, a, a point of a place of love and a place where mm-hmm. you see, you know, for, whether it's for your cooking, for your flavors, for your memories, for how you remember things. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it comes from a place of respect. Yeah. And, you know, before we start asking other people to respect us, we very often you find that you have to respect yourself first. Yeah. And I thought that was the thing with Indian food that, you know, uh, very often we ourselves were not. And then it's also it's about focusing on what is right, what is, you know. For far too long, I thought in Indian food, there was this, uh, there was this angle of wizardry, you know, where, oh, you know, uh, the value of an Indian chef very often would be judged upon, you know, his ability to make something taste like something else. Mm. So, like, oh, you know, I you know, make a kitchari, but I use, instead of rice, I use almonds, and instead of lentils, I use, you know, whatever. It's like, come on, let us celebrate the flavor of things more as yeah. they are, other than trying to make them think, you know, so oh, yeah. make eat out of garlic and making something else taste like something else is is not necessarily that trick, that trickery and that uh, gimmicky uh, nature, is it? The Naughty Bites Podcast. Super Chef Vivek Singh, a chef who keeps his recipes easy enough to appeal to any novice, whose interest might be stimulated by an unexpected sprinkle of a trusty favourite. Chef Vivek Singh is a familiar TV favourite, as well as a founder of the Cinnamon Club Restaurants and author of a number of books. He is an elite band of Indian trained chefs who has awakened the palates of many with real sense of the dusty hot streaks in Delhi. As you know, my podcast is called Naughty Bites. What's your guilt? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit cheeky. Um, what's your guilty naughty pleasure? Oh, God. Um, guilty naughty pleasure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anything to do with food, including Nigella. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't Nigella everyone's favorite? <laughs> the goddess uh, of food. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I mean, I'm, my guilty, naughty pleasure has got to be Snickers ice cream. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's so 90s. I used to. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's so I am. No, it's it's Snickers for me. I mean, I I, um, I still when I finish home when I finish work quite late in 
you know, get home around midnight or just before. Uh, very often, I can't put myself to sleep, just stay on. I have to unwind. I watch a bit of telly, you know, typically trash TV at that time of the night. That's pretty much what you got. Um, and, you know, if I'm catching up on the news or catching up on cricket or catching up uh, in that time, I often find myself reaching out to... Uh, all that sort of stuff that people advise you not to have. Uh, oh, fantastic. Snacks, no snacking. I end up having uh, Snickers ice cream very often. That's hilarious. So you will love the celebrations multi-mix box with like celebrations and Mars and Maltesers and things like that. No, I don't. I... No, oh my goodness, why? <laughs> Just chocolate doesn't do it for me. Although, although there is a chocolate, I mean, if I had to, if I had a second go at my guilty pleasure, it's probably. Oh, my second go would have been Jamie, um, not Jamie, Jamie <laughs> <Danny> Dodgers. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness! Uh, but yeah, Jamie Dodgers are my third, but probably my most recent one. Is um, when it comes to chocolate, is Terry's uh, chocolate orange. Have you had them? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got a dark version and a milk version. It's hard That's to right. choose. They're all, 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 you know, and, and, but every, everything has orange. And I love that. I, I love these segments. You know. yeah. That's hilarious because as a child, you'd break it really hard, but I actually loved the center where it was all crackled. All right, that was right. my favorite part of the Terry's chocolate orange. But recently I was in Devon and I haven't been to the UK since COVID. And only got back yesterday, but all I did was have scones and cream every day. I, I literally piled on a year's worth of calories. Uh, scones, <laughs> cream, and I kept eating pie. Like anything with like meat filling or vegetable filling, I was just it's literally stuffing my face with pastries. And um, today I'm like on a water diet. So I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> go back to normality and have fruit. But it was it was it, it was nice. It was um. Home comforts of like rich right. food, which is right. really, really good. I do love it. So, you're a restaurateur, entrepreneur, but I have to ask why have you named all of your businesses with cinnamon? Is there a little secret affair there? Yes, you could say that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, all, all the restaurants uh, have the element of cinnamon in there. Uh, I mean, you, you think of, you know, they're, they're, it's very difficult. It's, it's, it all started from the Cinnamon Club, and the name Cinnamon Club has an amazing ring to it. Sparky, you know, the, the restaurant itself, the space uh, was and is such a, an iconic venue. Uh, it, it's, the name then just stuck, and then everything else we did was Cinnamon. But when I think about it, when you think of Cinnamon per se as a spice, firstly, in Indian cooking, there is no such thing as, you know, one spice, one ingredient. You know, we don't have the equivalent of, say, <laughs> in the French, say, for example, uh, you know, a tarragon chicken. And then there is no such equivalent in Indian food. It's not like we do a zero chicken or a tanya chicken or whatever. You know, there's always so many spices. Um, and despite no matter what the hero spice is, they're more about blends. And what you will find uh, with cinnamon is that Cinnamon is a is a truly international spice. I you know it finds its use in so many different cultures, so many different countries, so many you know. It's there 
in so many civilizations and so many different countries, it has an influence. Um, but rarely do you find cinema as a hero spice. You know, it's always mm-hmm. there in the background. It's always, uh, it's omnipresent, but never really shouty. You know, uh, okay. um, it has a, a genuine uh, wide international appeal. And that's the bit that I love, love about it. I love the fact that it connects with so many people, so many different diverse parts of, you know. That's, that's really interesting because I've never really thought about it like that. But you're right, because again, yesterday I stuffed my face with an apple and oat cinnamon bite. It was fantastic. I wasn't going to lie. It was delicious. And then in Spain, they use cinnamon primarily in a lot of their desserts. And I'm like, I've never thought about it like that. But yeah, you're right. It connects different cuisines and cultures without, you know, it being a prime ingredient. It's almost like a background ing- ingredient. That's true. I, do like that. I like that. I like that thought. There's a lot of thought gone into that. So your career began in Kolkata. And you've gone on to cook for Bill Clinton. But, oh, yeah, I'm putting a lot of research about you. And your journey's been amazing. I have more to ask you in a minute. But <laughs> what has who has been the most memorable person you've cooked for? And what did they think of your your cooking? I know. Um, <laughs> who have I cooked for? I mean, who have I not cooked for in the recent history um, of Britain? Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't know. Um, but I stopped a long, long ago. I stopped thinking about who I was cooking for. Okay. Uh, are you like you know, uh, working in five star hotels and working in places like Radhilas and um, you know having Bill Clinton come and stay with us at the time was a seminal moment in our careers. I, I, you know, we never really thought about it, but that was precisely the reason that I got into hotel school and hospitality in the first place. Okay. I remember my induction and, and the, you know, the very beginning, the presentation of the, the hotel school in Delhi in, in uh, a very hot month in uh, 1990. And as I walked into the auditorium, the, the, the principal then was actually saying that, you know, hospitality gives you much more than just a livelihood. It, mm-hmm. It gives you an opportunity to interact with people, to meet people um, that so many people just can only dream of. Yeah. You know, so it could be, it depends on where you're working, what you're doing. You could be meeting uh, heads of state. You could be meeting very important ministers. You could be meeting, you know, Michael Jackson. <laughs> um, and then part of the glamour at the time. So, you know, um, so Bill Clinton actually materializing in front of our, you know, uh, eyes and uh, me kind of, you know, emptying out a skewer of kebab right out of his was, um, it was just that moment coming through, you know. But then he realized that, you know, being a chef uh, for you in many ways, everybody is just as important. Nobody is more important because they're with Clinton or you know, Michael Jackson or whatever. Um, and at the end of the day also, you know, as a chef, uh, Firstly, everybody is just as important, and that's really important to have the same love and the same care and the same mm-hmm. uh, concern and same thought behind whoever it is that you're cooking for, because they all pay the same price. Uh, and so, you know, there is really it's really important to have that sort of uh, egalitarian approach to it. You can't just become 
smitten by celebrity or you know smitten by mm-hmm. <clears throat> you can't have two sets of rules two sets of standards uh you know there is a saying in our business they say you know as a chef you're only as good as your last meal so you know it doesn't matter who you you fed and how long you've been in the business for you know if you, you send out shit on day, you should as good as that so, <laughs> But you can't stop caring because it's somebody less important or more important. Anything mm-hmm. that you send out of the kitchen uh, or anything that you put out on the menu has got to have the same level of care, whether it's in terms of how you thought about the dish, mm-hmm. how you thought about the cooking, how you thought about the sourcing, you know, how everything is is got to be the same. It's got to have the same level of love, the same level of affection, the same level of care. Care. Um, for it to be consistently good. And so you know if, when you take when you take that view after a while you realize it doesn't matter if it's Sherry Blair you could be or Gordon Brown or in Theresa May or it's a Sunak, you know. Yeah. It doesn't matter who it is. It what matters is is this the best you you want to put out or you can put out. Is it the best ingredients is it the best dish is it the best thinking. At the time then you realize that the only the only one thing that can really make a meal set apart from the other is how do you feel about the person that you're cooking for, you know, so mm-hmm. what do you want them to experience? So for me, if I have to think about, you know, who do I really care about cooking for? And, uh, you know, does it make me feel too differently? Is uh, is people I love. So if I'm cooking for my wife or my cooking for my mom, uh, I really put a lot of, you know, myself into it. Um, so, you know, perhaps that is the only time what I'm doing is different from, say, everyday cooking in a restaurant. That's really cool. You make it sound really poetic. As you are listening, I'll have all these other questions running through my mind. Um, you know, like you said... You, you know, cooking for your mother or cooking for your wife. While you were talking, I was thinking, God, the one person I would love to cook for, although I find the most stressful, would be my grandmother. And and it's because it's a most pressure because they're so critical of everything. And because they know all the techniques of Indian food, the last thing you want to do is give them something that does not taste great. But then, you know what? Beyond the point, you realise that it's not about pressing it's not about you know i think it's more about expressing mm-hmm. than impressing so you know it is it is you realize that oh and then then whoever it is that you're looking for also does get it at a point yeah. that this is something really special yeah uh, because you know this whole thing about being a guest and being a host. Yeah. For every great host, what you need first is a great guest, you know. Yeah. And then I think that is the, that sort of, and a very important component of being a good guest is grace. Mm. Because without grace, uh, no matter, no matter how much love and how much thought somebody puts it in, puts into it, Without grace, and that is why when when you don't have good guests, so you know when when somebody isn't being a good guest, you know, we mm-hmm. see this all the time in the restaurants. I spent 
good part of 30 odd years cooking professionally. There are people who absolutely joy to cook for because mm-hmm. they're open, they're adventurous, they're, you know, they're open to ideas, they they want to enjoy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there are other guests who are just also closed and the, they don't want to, you know, wear from the tried and tested, the, the beat path, you know. Um, or, or, or they perhaps just don't have the grace that it is needed, that is required for, mm-hmm. you know, to enjoy an experience fully. And the, in the absence of that grace, then it just, just doesn't remain, remain a... a it doesn't remain a guest host or hospitality experience. Yeah. It becomes a transaction. Yeah. So that is like, yeah, I need to get what I want. And, you know, there's a different, it's a completely different uh, uh, feeling. But most young chefs that I know of, um, I mean, of the million things that they can do or they can do for themselves, you know, like going out to eat in other restaurants, the thing that gives them the biggest thrill, the biggest kick, is actually going up to a dining room and, you know, having speaking firsthand to somebody who's just paid uh, good money for their dish and say, you know what, chef, that was amazing. Because that feeling, that instant gratification that you get from uh, that, you know, sometimes it's just simple, uh, what's the word for it? It, It's just simply... uh, being thankful, being appreciative. Sometimes it can be just flattery, even if it's mm-hmm. not. But it goes such a long way in in shaping how chefs and professional hospital, hospitality people kind of, you know, um, it shapes their careers like very little else does. Definitely, because you just reminded me of something and I mentioned it prior um, on another podcast that, there's, you know, living here, I do miss the home comforts of Indian food. And living here, my food has adapted to a bit more Mediterranean style because it depends on the seasons and the, the availability of spices. I don't get the strength of spice that I would normally get back at home. And there's this one restaurant in Nerecha, which is like in between Granada and Malaga, and it's on the coast. And the chefs are from Nepal, like Nepal. And... Um, for me, food is very emotional and I love food. I don't like that I love food. And they made all this like chick- this Nepalese chicken, spicy, whatever it was. I was crying because I was so excited. I was like, this is such good food. And I told the waiters and I was like, you've just made me feel like I'm back in India. Not in the UK, I'm back in India and I'm having authentic home-cooked food. And right. even, it, just, it was just, I felt like that person, you know, in um, Ratatouille where... I don't know if you've seen it, but Anton Ego eats a ratatouille and he has a flashback of his childhood. And that's exactly that. That's exactly how I feel. And and it's true, you know, those moments is what you've said. Grace, telling the chef the food was just fantastic because it gives you that that feeling of comfort and appreciation, you know? So true. And, And, you know, you're right. And food and food alone probably has that, ability and that power to take you back into another time and into a place at the same definitely time. definitely so you know you were in india well you were cooking in india but it was iqbal Wahab, which kind of enticed you to come to the uk what 
what made you, what was that one thing that he said that made you go, oh, you know what, let's try it out in London? No, I, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I had been cooking Indian food um, professionally for, I think, close to about eight years by that, um, yeah, no, no, nine, 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 ten years. Um, so I started in 1990 in my hotel school. Um, and I was at the Ragnilas in, you know, in, in Jaipur, which was at the time uh, the, the world's best hotel by Tatla. Uh, it was an amazing uh, time and a place. And um, I used to get quite a lot of opportunities, but I wasn't really that, I wasn't seeking our opportunities and not necessarily looking to move out of the country. Um, and I had, I had my training itself was uh, pretty much in all different kitchens. Okay. So I had European, I had a, a European training, pastry, butchery, a, a really sort of, you know, uh, the classic training that anybody can ask for. I, you know, worked in Thai kitchens, I had worked in butcheries, I had worked in pastries, bakeries, and overnight shifts, and a lot of different things. But the one thing that I really loved and I wanted to spend a lot of my time kind of specializing in was Indian food. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, because there was so little that was probably documented, there was so much to dig and so much to, um, uh, to learn and you know, standardize, and so I, I was very excited by that. I really wanted to run an Indian restaurant, um, and so. But my training kind of took me almost five years. Okay. To that point, where I had a speciality Indian restaurant to run, and then I, you know, I truly became an Indian rest, Indian food specialist at the Obroy, and. So much so that Mr. Ogroy wanted me to uh, move from Calcutta, where I was very happy and very kind of content. Yeah. Uh, it was a really nice Indian restaurant uh, called Garana, which took its inspiration from the royal courts of cooking from all different Indian uh, royal households. And so there was a lot of research there. There was a lot of learning. There was a lot of finesse. There was a lot of technique. Uh, I was really enjoying that, but Mr. Obroy suggested that I come to Ratvilas in Jaipur. And I was doing that. That really, you know, opened my eyes because that was an experience where I saw some of the finest produce, some of the best quality ingredients being flown in all the way from different parts of the world. You know, whether it was Australian lamb at the time, or, you know, Norwegian salmon, Mediterranean vegetables, you know, Italian rice, um, shellfish from Spain, and you know, just, just anything you could have asked. We were able to import the finest produce from all over the world. Um, but very rarely would we use any of this good stuff in Indian food. Mm-hmm. Um, it would always get used up in, you know, um, European continental cuisine or, you know, whatever, pastry or anmoger, but Rarely ever in an Indian kitchen, because the feeling was that you know, uh, you know, with Indian food with curry and spice, and you don't need good ingredients. Mm. You just use whatever. And I had a problem with that because I thought that was you know, uh, reverse racism. <laughs> I agreed. I agree to this. I do agree to this. Go on. <laughs> if if we don't take our cooking seriously, and you don't think it is worthy of good ingredients, then who else is going? to? Yeah, definitely. So I, 
I was a champion for, you know, pushing the boundaries. I wanted to do Indian food, but, you know, with the very best produce that money could buy. Um, and, you know, I wanted to modernize it. I wanted to create a bit more of El Guru. I, in the sense that I, I didn't feel that it was necessary to just cook recipes that have been going on for 200 years, you know, without questioning them, without looking for, uh, you know, new um, techniques or new influences. I wanted to create a bit more elbow room around, you know, what traditional Indian dishes were and how they could be evolved into the 21st century. Um, and then whilst generally there was a lot of support for, uh, you know, innovation and experimentation and what have you, but it, it dawned upon me quite, you know, in less than three years, it became clear that there wasn't an appetite for what I wanted to do with Indian food. And, uh, not not in hotels and not in India. Definitely, it was uh, ahead of its time, as the idea was. Um, and so that was the biggest draw for me. The ability, I had a blank canvas at the cinema club. I could do whatever I wanted to on the food at the menu. And this blank canvas to be able to express whatever it is that I was feeling at the time. And, you know, it, it was a huge draw. More than the restaurant more than the money, more than the position, more than a new country. It was this carte blanche, this, you know, white sheet of paper that I could have written anything on mm -hmm. uh, was a huge draw. And that is why uh, I kind of, I, I took the offer because I knew that this was a, this was a, a project where I could really make an impact with, mm -hmm. you know, with my offering and my ideas. Because I feel like you've nurtured Indian food. You know, and and what you've said is there is that misconception that people think Indian food is so spicy and blah blah blah. And then if it's spicy, you don't need quality ingredients because it's masked by the spice. But I don't think that's true. I I think Indian food has spice, but it's about the flavor. You know how you can magic like create these wonderful mixes of spices to create such warmth and aromas and you know they all awaken and tingle the senses and a lot of people forget that and I think you do need quality ingredients for a quality dish and you know you're not masking a paper bag in some you know it, it's in it's that misconception everyone here that I've come across that they always say to you well Indian food is so spicy let's just go for spice and I'm like I don't want spicy I just want good food flavorsome good food that I can go oh like I've got my fix, you know. Yeah. It, it's, it's true. Yeah, I think you know all of that actually comes from a point of a, a point of a place of love and a place of mm. you know, for, whether it's for your cooking, for your flavors, for your memories, for how you remember things. Uh, yeah. you know, it it comes from a place of respect. Yeah, and you know, before we start asking other people to respect us, we very often you find that you, know, you have to respect yourself first. Yeah. And I thought that was the thing with Indian food that, you know, uh, very often we ourselves were not. And then it's also it's about focusing on what is right, what is, you know. For far too long, I thought in Indian food, there was this, uh, there was this angle of wizardry, you know, where, oh, you know, uh, the value of an Indian chef very often would be judged upon, you know, his ability to make something taste like something else. Mm. Like, oh, you know, I you know, make a kitchen, but I use instead of rice, I use almonds, and instead of lentils, I use, you know, whatever. It's like, 
come on, let us celebrate the flavor of things more as yeah. they are, rather than trying to make them think, you know, oh, so yeah. make eat out of garlic and making something else taste like something else is is not necessarily that trick, that trickery and that uh, gimmicky uh, nature isn't the only way of it. So very often Indian chefs would say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if it's gone off a little, okay. you know, I'm just going to use so much ginger and garlic that you won't be able to taste anything. It's like, whoa, come on. Yeah. The fish or the piece of meat is bad to begin with. There's no way it's going to become, become a good dish. No, definitely. Definitely. But I agree with that. It's a two-way street. You know? It's not just one. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, dishes are also memories. What's your favorite? A lot of your dishes are based on memories. What's your favorite dish and what memories associated with that? Oh, God, yeah, favorite dish. I mean, it's so, so different, um, so difficult to pick one, um, especially when you have lots of memories. We also have lots of, <laughs> <laughs> lots of great meals. Um, so, you know, I, I, there, are, there are a few, I mean, um, if I had to go for the, the simplest one, I would think of uh, something like a, uh, there is a pumpkin pickle that I make uh, in my restaurants, uh, like a, a hot sweet pumpkin chutney. It's a cross between a pickle and a chutney is because okay. um, it's, it is better when it's been matured for a few days, but you don't have to eat it the same day. And I have this um, so this pumpkin chutney stroke pickle is the only vegetable that I would eat as a child. I okay. not eat much else. I did not like it. Um, but uh, very often, you know, when I think of that dish, it reminds me so many, so many different things. You know, it was a dish that mom could make once and, you know, it would last for a few days. And those days, we did not have a fridge. So um, it was also, you know, if you bought... She, she offered to buy a baked pumpkin. Um, those days, you know, we had vegetable sellers who would probably come to our house and what they would be walking, you know, past okay. the colony. So she'd very often, you know, have somebody to come in instead, look at what they had, and she'd buy the pumpkin often. Um, very often, I think, you know, she'd, she'd buy a whole pumpkin, you know, ask why, and she'd say, well, it's because it's the heaviest thing he's got to carry everywhere else he goes, you know. So I just mm-hmm. take it load off. And it's quite a nice thing to think about people like that. Mm-hmm. Then she would cut them into smaller pieces and she'd use them for different things uh, over the next few days. But the chutney or the pickle was something that was her kind of, you know, it was a little trick up her sleeve. She'd have some leftover from whatever. And any time somebody turned up unannounced or, you know, we, we often used to get visitors who turn up unannounced and way past meal times. And in those days, you know, um, somebody stopped quite far, somebody turned up. Um, okay. Dad often would say, well, can we organize something for them to eat? <laughs> you know, she used to cook a lot. She used to cook two, three, four meals a day, often three or four dishes each time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, from one meal to another, she was just forever cooking. Uh, and, and in between, if somebody turned up unannounced, she would quickly rustle up, you know, she'd get the fire going, quickly rustle up some puris and uh, make some deep fried puri bread. And then the pickle, the soft feet, chop, you know, pumpkin chutney. So tasty. So amazing, right? I, it's probably my 
fondest memory of food and hospitality. And uh, I just, just generally. I, You've made my mouth water because I'm thinking of tiki puri and chai. That's all I love. I need to get making that. So I also read that um, your father wanted you to become an engineer or pursue engineering. That's right. Right. How how did you, because, you know, in in South Asian, I'd say culture, but um, I don't know what you'd say, but a lot of them go engineering, accountancy, um, med- something in medicine. How did you tell your father you wanted to pursue the line of becoming a chef? Yeah, it wasn't just about, you know, um, what they wanted us to become. They would be wanted what they knew, right? I mean, mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you wanted your children to do better or at least that. And you only had experience of what you had experience of. At the time, there weren't many role models. There weren't many examples of people who, you know, worked hospitality, or certainly not in our families, not, not in where I was growing up. <clears throat> I mean, at the time, it wasn't, you know, a career as it is now. It's not yeah. good. television or about books and the celebrity that comes with it. It wasn't. It was way before its time. So there wasn't, you know, and at the time, there, there, there was no way that they could have encouraged us to get into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, neither did I know any better. I just fell into it because I had friends who, you know, somebody had done a course or somebody had a cousin or a brother who had done a course like this. So it was just, it was meant to be. It was lots of these students that fate has for you in different places and you have contact with one and the other. And at the time, it wasn't also just about, okay, if you wanted to become an engineer, you would become an engineer. It is so competitive in India. The very best of the best of the best go for such, you know, there's so few seats and so many people applying for these exams. It's not, you know, it's not normal. Very often, you aren't among the very best. You wouldn't get selected. And yeah. I think, to, you know, engineering not the first time around. I tried again. Uh, like everybody else, you know, you tried to pay your off and I all the exams again. Uh, yeah. I get them again. Uh, but this time I had other backups. So I had hotel management as one of the backups. I had the, um, I, I, the other thing I wanted to do was to join the defense for the armed forces in India. And so I did those exams as well. I, did, I got into neither, but I got into hotel school. So I went to hotel school. And then I, I had so much fun. It was yeah. amazing. So I did. I had so much fun in the first three months that even when I got offered a position in in a godforsaken engineering college on its fourth, fifth, or sixth list um, in some godforsaken town, uh, but after three months, I got I got offered a place. Turned it down. I said that I, you know, I was just yeah. so much. And so that's how I ended up doing hotel school. You know, in the beginning, my parents didn't take to it kindly because they thought, oh, I was. I was, you know, passing on a wonderful. <laughs> I wasn't because, you know, um, but no. By then, I was enjoying so much that I, okay. I, it and I, you know, but in the end, they were, you know, kind of when I finished hotel school and I got a uh, really good job, you know, the best okay. I could get. You know, they were really happy. 
and they kind of they got it. I think I think in the end they they both come around, so which is a good thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great thing. But I I also read again um, that your father only cooked twice a year. That's right. Yeah. Why Why was that? And what did he cook? Because I feel like I've always found that in our fa- in my family that the men were really good cooks. And when they did cook, um, it was the smell. Like, you know, as a child, like, oh, I want to try this. So was that the same? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I don't think it is it's, it's that. It's, uh, was he a good cook or a bad cook? You know, uh, most British dads, you know, they only come out of their caves every, you know, two times, three times, four times a year. Every time the sun comes out, they crawl out from under the caves and come and position themselves in front of a very, very hot barbecue and they burn most things that they put on there, right? But if you ask most, most British kids, they think, you know, the, the barbecue is the most fun day of the year. It was no different for us, I think. You know, I, I mean... It's amazing that my mom used to cook 364 days a year, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, three or four meals a day, sometimes four. Each meal sometimes had two, three, if not four or five, you know, little components of that. I mean, she was cooking millions of meals and nobody even noticed, so nobody remembers any of that. Grateful as children. And then, you yeah. know, the father cooks once a year. You know, we all talk about heritage dishes and how amazing it looks and smells. But, uh, you know, I'm grateful as it is to the mums. Now, he's to cook. I think it's this thing about al fresco. You know, men men think, oh, it's it's not every day. It's a different, you know, something different from every day. And therefore, um, let's do it, you know. Oh, then men come out, you know, outside the kitchen. It's not a slag. It's not a, you know, whatever it is. The men come out. He used to cook this dish, which I often refer to as a, my heritage dish. Um, he used to cook this uh, these dough balls filled with roasted chickpea flour, uh, some spices and stuff. And he used to cook this rose, um, uh, these dough balls directly onto dying embers of cow fat. So okay. you get cow fat going first and then he would roast the uh, not roast burn aubergine on it, whole aubergines stuffed with cloves of garlic, you know, uh, whole Greek chili stuffed inside the mm-hmm. aubergine. Yeah. Would burn them in a really, really high kind of you know flaming cow fat. And then as the the cow fat embers would be settling down, he would uh, place his dough balls. Dough balls have been filled with a lentil, uh, spicy lentil uh, okay. inside. And so these raw doughs, they dough balls, they place them on the embers and you cover them with the ashes. Almost a bit like baking. If you okay. have you could do this in an oven, but it's good. No, we never had ovens or whatever. So it's good on the ground. And then after 15 odd minutes or so they get roasted and cooked. Um and the, the, the fire would have died out, you know, they pick pick up the pick up the dough balls. And um, you know we we kind of um, wipe them with a, you know on a very very big bed sheet, just yeah. dust uh, on them, 
and then they would be soaked in ghee, and then you know we'd all eat them with this very spicy relish made out of roasted aubergines, um, mustard oil, red, chili, red onions, green chili. Amazing, amazing, really nice. Very rustic, very very kind of nomadic way of mm. men doing what men do best. <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. I'm just like, oh, goodness. Um, so recently you cooked for Curry, like a special event, Curry for the Carers, raising money for India, Bangladesh, Nepal, um, to support unpaid carers. How did that event go? And, you know, what was your, you know, why did you choose to do that? Look, I mean, I think, I mean, there are not not just that event. We have, we have more such such events lined up for the thing. I mean, we think about Kari uh, for carers, or actually carers worldwide. Mm. Uh, it's it's hard enough as it is for you know uh, to have somebody unwell or not being able to work or needing care. It's it's tough. It's tough for most families, um, and and there is always an un, unspoken cost, uh, you know, uh, anybody that, that is. So when this charity first came, I mean, I came across the charity first to a common friend uh, who's also the chair of their trustees, uh, Jonathan Freeman, and he introduced me to Anil, Anil Patil, who uh, uh, founded the charity years ago. I mean, he started from a really, really small base. And now they have so many members and so many their little projects that they, I mean, they're not Big. It's not a massive big charity, but it's a cause that everybody and anybody can relate to. And if you have had someone that you've looked after, you cared for, you know the value of it. And if you needed to look after someone, but you haven't had that resource, you also then realize that it's a value of care. Uh, it is a, you know, paid care is different. Paid care is expensive in the best of countries, but, yeah. but unpaid care is probably. Um, just not appreciated enough. So it was an opportunity to do this, and I thought, you know, it was it was great. So we we've, we've done a few master classes, we've done a few uh, uh, kind of recipe giveaways and things like that. Try to raise a bit of awareness to our own database and things like that. But we've got more projects um, and more interesting initiatives planned for later on. Okay, awesome. And um, you did a series of like cooking with the guardian many years ago um and i read that you did um a biryani masterclass with Mumtaz begum i think and she late she like marinated her mutton in saffron with warm milk and yeah. um this um, I, I'm, I'm talking like 2014 to around that time do you apply those little secret cooking skills to your to your dishes um, I mean, look, you know, you 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 are constantly surrounded by uh, these little secrets and these little mm-hmm. things. Uh, there are things that uh, speak to you and you make them your own, and there are other things that you know you just kind of forget about because. Uh, so this series for the Guardian that you talked about, 2015, or I think it came out in 2016, in the beginning, uh, mm. was uh, uh, to mark, I think it was to mark, to mark 15 years of Cinnamon Club. Um, okay. 
traveled into India with a few journalist friends and uh, we did this feature. Uh, I mean, God bless his soul, uh, Mukhtar Begum is no more. Uh, but she, she was somebody who, who, I mean, yeah, she, she must have played a huge role in, in, in raising an awareness of what already is black art, you know, magic. Uh, when it comes to the Hyderabadi biryani, she must have done so much. She must have opened her kitchens and her house and her kitchens to so many visitors from across the world. People who come. And she's cooked the biryani for them, sometimes with them, as is the case with me. You know, she cooked the biryani with me. And so there was this uh, moment where the the mortar and vessel, uh, we have this. Uh, and you know, it's, you, you realize that often cooking is not just because there are so many things that are moving in the, the size of the fire, the how is the wood? How dry is the wood? How small? Yeah. How big is the wood? Because you know, small wood, uh, small wood uh, can burn really quickly, so it can you know become really hot. It's okay. Thank you. I'm in the middle of a ball. What the hell? I don't know. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, they, they you know so the, everything is everything is a very so not everybody is a doer. Very often you would see people like Mukhtas, you know, Begum, who who are there to look over other things, you know, yeah. to see. <clears throat> they see something more than other people can see. People are doers, you know, people are somebody's getting the fire going, somebody's doing the you know the meat marinating. So she very often would not even lift a finger. But she could see it. She could tell, well, no, no, it needs a bit more fire before you put the pot. Or you need stability in order to eat. It's got too much meat for the amount of fire there. Or well, you need to get the rice going. Whatever. You know, she, she was somebody who's pretty much like a conductor in an orchestra. Yeah. You know, and, and it's very assuring uh, to have, or reassuring, to have a whole story. But you know that somebody is watching over. <laughs> and that she... And you know, one wonders that you know, if you only had somebody like that, every household has somebody. Yeah. You all have a Yeah. Yeah. You've brought this woman to my mind. She's a cousin of my mother's, well, aunt of my mother's actually. And whenever there's a wedding and you've got to make tiki puri or fafragatia or something, or, you know, where. Uh, you know, at Diwali, you have the. Is it. Um, oh, I forgot the word. It's a sweet puri. It's, a, it's like a sweet, like fried puri, but it's hard. And she, I get really nervous cooking in front of her. So I start switching and my puri's never come out round because I get so nervous. But she is like, she's on it. She's like on board, like, it needs to be round, it's too thick, it's not done this. And she, she's like the orchestra, like she is like the conductor orchestrating all of us. <laughs> she makes me nervous. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Things like that. So, um, your your take on Indian cooking is very mindful of Indian tradition, but it's also innovative and fresh. Is there a dish that you have that is sharp, cool, 
and hot in the mouth all at the same time. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I have not been asked this before. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, you know, that's, I think it's a, it's a hallmark of most well curated dishes or certainly mm-hmm. restaurants uh, in the style of cooking that we do. Our eat course is that of taking traditional Indian so inspiration from traditional Indian dishes or traditional Indian spicing, finding that with the very best, you know, local seasonal produce that money can buy. Yeah. That is the ethos. They're very central to what we do. I think what you're looking for is that sort of constant pull and that push, you know, in all different directions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the sweetness, the sharpness, the coolness, mm-hmm. the warmth, the color, the drama, the you know, all of that coming together. And every time you manage to get all of it in that balance, you've got a perfect dish. If I had to think of one, I think of okay, well, you know. Is there a dish that is both cooling and heating and sweet and savory all at the same time? Probably is, you know. So there is a dish that we do on our restaurant menus. It's called a, a banana leaf wrap sea bass with the spices. Uh, we have this uh, banana leaf, which is just seasoned with some red chilies and uh, some salt, a little bit of oil. That's it. Then we make a salsa of shallots, garlic, and cracked black pepper, and curry leaves, a bit of vinegar, uh, some salt, some sugar, and a bit of ground red chilies. And you mix that with oil, that chopped shallot thing. And I just mix that with oil. And it tastes like salsa. You know, it's like to serve on a barbecue next So we take that salsa and we uh, take a banana leaf, we put a bit of salsa, we put a, that piece of marinated fish, we put another bit of salsa on top, and we wrap the same like that. Okay. Then we serve that. Uh, so we, we took that on a grill or on a frying pan, and just sort of, you know, um, three minutes, three, four minutes on one side, really high heat. So the fish, uh, the, the banana leaf starts to burn. Um, well, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but inside it, the fish is coming in. The fish is um, in contact with the, the, the pan as well. So, yeah. and it's been, you know, it's first coming in contact with the, the leaf is first in contact, and then the salsa, and then the fish. So the fish is caramelizing, but so is the onions and the shallots, yeah. all of that going on. But the fish is also steaming at the same time because it's in the, yes, all of that happening together. And then we uh, we serve that with while that is doing, we make a mix of like a chutney, a quick uncooked chutney of um, green mangoes, coconut, you know, a little garlic, a little shallot, mm. like a that freshness of you know that sort of sweet sour mango and the, the sweetness of coconut, and the sharpness of mango comes together really nicely. It's cool, but it's also fresh. With a the yogurt rice, which is again cool. So all of that, you know, put together in your mouth and you have when you have the heat and the peppering is and you know the chili and the pepper, two different kinds of heat, but you also have the minerality and the curry yeah. leaves, the caramelization of the shallots, fish and the sweetness of the fish itself. it's just everything. It's like everything you ask. <laughs> I'm really hungry, it's like my eyes were just drifting away. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you're so good. So like, you know, like, so 
the history of Indian food began in the um, Harappan era. Okay, so you know, it, it, in this era, like you had staple ingredients, which was like every, which is now used in everyday cuisine. So like wheat, rice, lentils, uh, millet in Indian food. But a lot of people don't know that our primary taste, we have six. So you've got sweet, salty, um, pungent, bitter, astringent, and there's another one. Um, so, and sour. Mm. Yeah. So what's your signature style? Because we have so many that we can play with these styles, like, you know, these styles and these tastes. What's your... What's your signature style? Do you like to include them all or do you like the hidden secrets of like having one or two? No, I, I you know, I think, I think uh, um, much like, you know, all these different uh, sensations that we were talking about, uh, a, a good, a well-balanced dish or a really good dish or a well-balanced meal rather, because I don't think there are dishes that have all of those qualities at the same time. Ooh. You know, you you're sweet and, uh, and you, you're most likely not astringent, not umami, or not you know um, sour. But a, a well-balanced meal, very often you would find you know, it'll it'll have all of those different components together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I as I'm getting older, I'm getting more and more. Um, what's the word for it? You know, I'm I'm becoming. I'm leaning more and more towards bitter because that wasn't something that I was or favoured when I was younger. Okay. Enjoyed as much, but I think it's part of growing up. It's uh, you, know, you start to appreciate mm-hmm. these tastes and flavours that you previously. Yeah. Um, but I think you know there is an umaminess that comes out of uh, bitterness, which is very desirable. Yeah. So yeah, so that's probably I'm, I'm leaning more towards that. But otherwise, you know, most dishes, most good dishes and most good meals will have a balance of all of these. Definitely. And, you know, you grew up, you're immersed in Bengali culture growing up, you know, the street carts, the food, the flavours, the neighbours' smells. Do you miss that while living in the UK? Uh, it's a good question, I think, you know. Um, do you miss it? <laughs> Whatever you miss more, you, you try and recreate, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think... Uh, missing something is always a good starting point uh, for expression. Uh, a lot, a lot of what we do. I mean, I, I when I first when we first moved into the UK many years ago, I, um, I mean, you know, we we have such uh, we have a really in, in Britain, especially in the UK. I think we you know we have a really good Asian population, and you know, we we have access to good ingredients. We have uh, we celebrate a lot of the festivals together. There was a lot of awareness and stuff. I, I looked around and I said, you know, what, what is it that I really miss or, you know, we don't have enough of here? Realized, you know, Holi was the festival that we didn't have here. I brought Holi to the UK because I thought, oh, this would be good. Uh, and, you know, so we started um, celebrating Holi in the city every year. And uh, that over the years has become really popular. We've had almost 10 or 11 years we've been doing this. But it's exactly that, you know. So and a few years ago, I um, looked around and said, you know, what is it that I grew up with? I loved a lot, but we don't see enough of in London now. And um, it was charts and it was the street food and the, mm-hmm. you know, that 
buzz and the color and the bustle of you know most street markets that India has on yeah. every corner. I mean, you couldn't go to an Indian street market or Indian market per se. It doesn't even have to be a street market. Indian yeah. without having thrown at you like you know a plethora of options of eating out. You know that's how we are. You know we we have. Yeah. A specialist guy who does something really well on one one corner, you might have somebody else on another corner, or you might have entire streets full of people who are you mm-hmm. know, serving something fun, something snacky, something <laughs> something dark, and whatever it is, whether it's samosas, whether it's chaps, whatever. It's all the place, all the time. We don't, you know, eat by time. We don't mm-hmm. eat clock, and that's the beauty of a bazaar. And I thought, you know, we didn't have that. And God, you know, there aren't places in even nice restaurants and stuff as they are. We have thousands of Indian restaurants in the UK. We never had, we didn't have that many all day dining mm-hmm. places. Yeah. There were places that were offering the kind of energy and the, uh, you know, the color and the flavor and the noise and the bustle of a bazaar. So I launched Cinnamon Bazaar like that, you know, offering yeah. char. And we, we are so famous now for our charts. People come, you know, from all over. It's they're getting introduced to something new. They haven't had it before. We love it, and you know, every time, every time we've done something that we've loved, <laughs> very often we do. So you know, that's, that's how. That's a win-win. So because you grew up in 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 in, well, in in Bangladesh, but then your children have grown up in the UK. Apart from the environment you've given them they're also exposed to international cuisine as well, you know, everything apart from what you would get in in, in South Asia. Um, have they experienced a part of your life growing up with the carts and, the, you know, the hustle and bustle and, you know, the busyness of what India presents or gives you, experience it gives you? They must have experienced a part of it, even if it is a very small part or mm. it whether it be a very um, a sanitized part of it. Oh, by the way, just to correct, I, I didn't grow up in Bangladesh. I grew up in West oh, Bengal. Oh, sorry. My bad. Don't worry. You know, it's... Uh, but I, yeah, growing up in West Bengal, I mean, you know, the thing is, as much as you may want to recreate exactly your own circumstances mm-hmm. and exactly your own experiences, and you want to part uh, or impart every single one of your own experiences down to your children. The reality is that it never is the same. It's okay. a different, you know, most of, especially in our case, because it's a different country altogether. It's different. Even if it is not the, not a different place or a different city or a different town or a different yeah. country, you find that even the fact that it's just a different time is often enough. They will have their own experiences. We will, we will have our own. We will, as much as we would try to bring the two together, there will be certain things that will stick and certain others won't. Yeah. But that's what life is, you know. Um, it is. Oh. So, my last question to you: You boa, okay? Boa is a typical breakfast in many households, okay? And I've never been a fan of boa. You know, what is the, it? Oh, P-O-H-A. I say Gujarati way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poha, yeah poha. Poha. Right, so I say Gujarati way, or, or sorry. And I've never been a fan of it. So whenever we had it at a wedding for breakfast, or my mum would make it, or my grandmother, 
I would always try to think maybe one day this is the day that I will like it. So how do you, what's your secret to making me <laughs> get it? I've seen the recipe online, but um, are there any tips you could give me to make me a lover and not a hater or follower? Okay, I'll tell you what. I mean, I think, I think um, I I had only begun to love it after I got married to my wife. And, you know, she, she loves it. She makes it quite well. And over the years, um, you know, it's kind of become a, one of the very few things that all four of us will agree for for breakfast. You know, so it's like if we are together on breakfast time, breakfast time, we have, you know, um, it's one of the very few things that all four of us will agree on. So it's become this. But, I mean, poha for me, I mean, what can I do for you? I'm, I, I tell you, do you use curry leaves? Yeah, love it. Mm-hmm. Great, amazing. So I use mustard seeds and you use, do you use onion? Love them, love everything, yeah. You use onions in your poha? My mom didn't put, like, my mom would put curry leaves in, mustard, spices, and I don't remember onions and no potatoes. No, that's not that nice. No, yeah. it wasn't that nice. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, because a lot of Gujarati recipes did not use onions and not use potatoes and they just, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Russian one uh, is, is got onions and potatoes and um, perhaps some, some of them even a bit of tomatoes. Uh, okay. But it's a spice in it. And, and and when my wife is she's cooking in the beginning, she would cook the potatoes and she cook the peanuts in it. And okay. I completely told her not to and you know so I always get the peanuts fried separately and put the peanuts on top so they have the crunch and they have you know um, it's I found that by just taking that you know that recipe and breaking it down into uh, <laughs> separate things yeah. if you need you know you are you are um, naughty bites you've got to you've got to you've got to introduce more naughtiness into your uh, into your so think yeah. of <laughs> think of adding things like you know uh, Bombay makes a dog uh, and a chivra you know on uh, for more more added crunch uh, you know introduce it's a bit chivra. of a bit of sweetness and spice and naughtiness it's like the Powerpuff Girls <laughs> sugar spice and everything nice or something like that absolutely absolutely you do need sugar and spice in it. Definitely. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And listening to you talk has been, you should be a storyteller. You know, people that have audiobooks because you're so captivating that when you talk, it's like my mind was going elsewhere and I was like, oh, I can <laughs> see myself eating this or being there. But thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Alicia. Good thank luck. You, Bites and everything Thank else. Thank you. Yep. I can't wait. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.